Hello, you're listening to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Remember that you can find us on social media. You can also email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. Our guest this week is Sandra Goldmark, and she is the author of Fixation. In just a moment, Sandra is going to be with us and tell us all about what she is up to. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. And this week, our guest is Sandra Goldmark. She's the author of Fixation and the Director of Sustainability and Climate Action at Bernard College. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Carol. Thank you for having me. Oh, and thank you for being our guest. Can you tell us a little bit about your fixation with fixing things? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so a little background. As you mentioned, I'm a professor at Barnard College where I teach theater. I teach theatrical design. So I've spent my whole career dealing with stuff, you know, putting it on stage, schlepping around. And at a certain point in my life, um, a lot of things broke in my house. I had a newborn baby at home and I started getting really frustrated with what felt like this crazy system where you can't get anything fixed anymore and you have to buy a new one. But I knew from my life in the theater that it was possible to fix things. So that is the point where I guess you might say I got fixated about 10 years ago. And long story short, I started opening repair shops uh, all around the city, pop-up short-term repair shops in New York. Um, And that is the beginning of how I got fixated with fixing. (laughs) I'm curious, we're going to delve into that more, but what was the response to your pop-up shops? Um, well, it was funny. So this was in the first shop was in 2013. And I remember we set up a little, um, we had a, a storefront to open our first pop-up and we didn't know if anyone would show up or, or care. We didn't really know if we'd be able to fix anything. We certainly didn't know how much to charge. Um, and I remember on that first day, we brought a bunch of our own broken items just in case nobody came. <laughs> it was me and my husband and we had a bunch of theater colleagues who staffed it with us, you know, electricians, carpenters, costume designers, people who know how to make and fix things. And I'm happy to report that the reaction was so strong in the neighborhood. People, um, they would come by and their little shop and do, do a double take. They'd come in and say, wait, you fix things? <laughs> I said, Yes. And they would say, hold on, don't move. They would go away and come back with like literally a bag full of broken things that they'd been saving in their apartment because they was nowhere to get anything fixed. I mean, it was almost comical. (laughs) Yes. And I think this is kind of a eureka moment. Uh, Not only did you find it, so did everybody else. And I'm just wondering, what was it that is in your background that made you think this was a good idea? I mean, you know, aside from your own personal frustrations, where did you go to school and how did it lead you down down this path? Well, my path in some ways doesn't make sense, but then it does when you zoom out. So I went to I went to Harvard as an undergrad and I studied American history and literature. And then I went to Yale for grad school where I studied design, theatrical design. So as I said earlier, I have I have this foundation of really being fascinated with the American story, right? In, in undergrad, I was very interested in this country and how we got to where we are. 
And then I have this thread as a storyteller, a storyteller with objects. When you're a set designer and a costume designer, you help tell a story with the space, with the physical objects, with the colors, with the textures. And I saw, as as you indicated, I saw in my personal life and in my professional life that this and and frankly, at the national level, that the story we're telling, we're living of consumption, felt very wrong to me. It felt like there's very little options other than use and discard. And it felt to me, and I saw later, as, as I indicated, that it felt to my customers that this didn't make sense, that it wasn't right. And I got very interested in that question of, wait a minute, if people aren't happy with this system, right, if we actually don't all want to live in a system of use and discard, then how did we get here? And of course, how do we get out of it? And in your younger years, was this something that, I don't know, you picked up from your family or some other influences? I mean, I know that we still have the remnants of the depression in our family lineages and, you know, just not only trying to make things last, but um, what I notice in my family is buying things very inexpensively. So there may be some crossover there. And I'm just wondering if you experienced that in your family. Yeah, certainly my interest in stuff comes from from my family to some extent. My mother is a great, you know, she's French. It's called a bricoleur. She can fix anything. And her father was like a serious bricoleur. I remember we used to come home and find the washing machine and like 10,000 pieces all over the kitchen floor. And then my, you know, my grandmother would say, you better put that back together. We have to have lunch. <laughs> um, and she was very frugal. You know, they were from a different generation. I remember she used to rinse the tin foil and fold it and put it back in the drawer, which I still do to this day. But then, of course, at the same time, there is also... Um, uh, an increasing tendency and a pressure in our society to buy, to look for the cheapest price, to look for the, the, the deal, the bargain. And I guess partly because of my sort of fascination with history, I, I did begin to see all of these different forces. The idea that repair, reuse, and frugality was part of our heritage is still all around us, actually. You know, many um, societies and neighborhoods have swaps and repair uh, um, practices. Many indigenous communities have an incredible tradition of what would now be called the circular economy. But somehow in mainstream America, in my life as a New Yorker, it, it seemed to have gotten all out of whack. And for me, these repair shops and the book that came out of it is a way to say, wait a minute, there's a path out of this mess that isn't necessarily about building something completely new or inventing some new solution. It's about recognizing these patterns and practices that, that we many of us know that our grandmothers did, that many traditional cultures still practice today, and naming them and resourcing them and making that the mainstream again. So when you were growing up, was it always in New York or are, are your roots, I mean, mm. broader than that? So I grew up in New York, um, but as I said, my mother's French, so we went to France every summer, and I would spend the summer with her and her parents and my cousins. So that that grandfather who would take apart the washing machine was French. Though my American grandfather, who was actually Hungarian, was also an engineer and a tinkerer and a great worker of stuff. So I, I get it from both sides. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And this is very fascinating to me. The time that you spent in France, do you recollect any comparisons that you could make? Because I know when we've spoken about this in the past with some of our other guests, they really felt the U.S. was a bit behind Europe in particular. 
Yes, I think so. I mean, there are, especially around circularity and repair and things like plastics, I do think that um, France and the European Union are making really exciting steps on a policy level. You know, Sweden introduced a repair tax rebate in 2017. France introduced um, in January of this year a requirement that manufacturers put a repairability index on certain products. Um, France also just banned the use of certain plastics in supermarket packaging, which is like a huge big deal. So I would love to see some of those really powerful policy changes come to the U.S. And have you seen any budging on this? Are we waking up, so so to speak, and can we catch up? Yeah, I think of I think of the stuff movement, which is what I call what's happening around repair, reuse, and and plastic, and all of the stuff problems, as analogous to the food movement, which started much earlier, many decades ago, as a pushback against ag and low quality food. And I do see some movement in the U.S. and globally, and a, a realization that our this linear wasteful system has got to stop. And I see on many levels, I see individuals who are sick of it. I see students who are young just kind of taking as a matter of course that that they should they buy used clothes instead of new. I see things like the right to repair movement really taking off around the world. People saying, hey, manufacturers need to make things fixable and provide parts and supplies. But I do see some movement. The the challenge is that the scale of the problem is so huge. We need way more movement at a much bigger scale than what we have right now. Yes, and this is a kind of a recurring theme of the show as well, mm-hmm. because we have talked to folks who are working in that realm. And I remember going to Eileen Fisher and the f- huge felting machine that they had imported to try and recycle and reuse some of the garments. Big, big investment. But is this part of your personal movement or are you really focused more on the individual consumer and repairing the goods that they have in their hands that they would like to fix? Well, for me, it's definitely about all levels of change. I think we need change at the individual level for a number of reasons. First of all, to send market signals. Second of all, to create a groundswell and like bring your community along. And third of all, because I think it's important for us, um, I think, change at the individual level is in some ways the root or the impetus for, for change at the systemic level. But we definitely need changes by businesses. We need businesses to build their business models around reuse and repair and circularity. And then we definitely, definitely need the policies that are going to make that possible. Like right now for an individual, it's incredibly hard to change your practice. It's a real pain in the butt to get anything fixed, as I discovered. It's very... <laughs> It's, you know, all of the incentives backwards. The entire system pushing you to buy the cheapest, newest thing. So for me, individual actions are a part of this big puzzle. They're a starting point. They're how we get a groundswell. But it's definitely not the the end. It's, it's maybe the first move, but it's not the last. A multifaceted approach, for sure. I'm just really wondering also... This is this becomes very complex because as soon as we start asking manufacturers to make things that last longer, they're going to have to charge more. Are, are consumers really ready for that? I mean, are we fully grasping as consumers the implications of buying things so cheaply? 
I think that's a really good question, Carol, and I think it is a real problem here because it does involve a big shift in mindset. Because yes, the the truth of the matter is we're all going to manufacture some new goods, right? And those new goods, in order to be sustainably and ethically produced, where people are paid paid a living wage to make them, those new goods are going to have to be a little pricier. And that's hard for people to accept, just partly because of our habit of, you know, bargain hunting. And partly because people say, well, wait a minute, then all of a sudden new goods are only accessible for a certain few. And there's a real equity question there. But I, the way I like to think about it is that circularity supporting reuse and repair in addition to supporting you know higher quality new goods means that you have multiple access points so you're not just increasing the price of new goods you're also making it possible for people to get used goods high quality used goods more easily for them to get things fixed so you create more entry points into the system to address some of the equity problems but ultimately yes it is going to require a mind shift for people at all levels of the economic spectrum to say, when I buy something new, I have to be more rare. I'm going to have to spend a little more time finding something high quality, and I'm going to have to spend a little more knowing that I can keep it longer, that I can get it fixed, or that I could buy a used item if, if the price point's too high. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I love that um, because you can still bargain shop in the uh, the used item stores, and we're absolutely at, yeah, and it's fun. <laughs> we love to shop. We're at that midway point break now, and uh, we're going to be back in just a moment with Sandra Goldmark, and we'll talk a little bit more about your book. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And today, our guest is Sandra Goldmark, and she has written a book called Fixation. So I would love to talk about the contents of the book and your experience also of being an author. When did you write the book, Sandra? I wrote the book in 2019 because I remember I got the galley proofs back from the publisher just after the pandemic hit. Um, I remember because I actually got COVID as I was correcting the proofs. So if there's any typos, maybe people can forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to ask that question. So we'll, we'll come back to, to COVID. But how long did it take you to write it? And just kind of share with us, what was the impetus? I mean, we've talked about the fixation with fixing things. But how did that evolve into writing a book? Good question. So, yeah, I started in 2013. We started running the repair shops. I had no thought of, I don't know where the project was going. I thought we would do one and we wound up doing 12. And I thought it was just about repair and reducing waste in the beginning. And then I found, you know, we fixed something like 2,500 objects and and spoke with, that means we spoke with 2,500 people. And I realized listening to their stories about their objects that there was so much more here than just repair or even reducing waste, that this project really was about understanding consumption, our, our, our stuff, these things that we make and use and how they 
shape us as individuals, how they are a defining part of our species. If you think about it, every human being, every human society uses tools, makes objects. We, it, it's part of who we are as much as language or cooked food or art or religion. And yet this part of our humanity is causing huge, huge damage. Our, our identity as makers and therefore users and therefore disposers of stuff is, is causing enormous damage to the planet. So I was interested in talking to my customers about all of these things, the waste, the problems, but also some of the beauty and the joy and the the power of, of how we make and use things. So I just was listening to them. And then one day at my tent in the farmer's market, we were you know, people were dropping off broken items and a woman came up and she said, hey, you know, I've seen some of the emails you've been sending and this and that. Have you ever thought of writing some of these ideas down? And I said, you know, I think I do have something to say. <laughs> and then that was it. Then I started writing the book. It took about a year to write. And uh, were you self-published? No, the book is published by Island Press, a wonderful um, publishing house, a nonprofit environmental publishing house. And how did you find them? I mean, did you have somebody that was helping you with this process? Um, or did you already kind of know and understand what you needed to do? To No, I, I, I knew nothing. I had never published a book, nothing. No, the woman who stopped by the farmer's market was um, Diana Finch. She's a book agent. And she was really interested in this question of stuff and frustration with the system. And so she had me write a book proposal. Um, I remember I went to a wonderful website called, I think it's called writeyourdanbookproposal.com. It was awesome. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and we sent it around to publishing companies. So I learned a little bit through her how the how it works to get a, a book into the into the universe. And we talked a little bit briefly there about COVID. How has all this impacted us? Because now we're in this very interesting supply chain crisis and we can't find all the stuff we want to buy anymore. Mm -hmm. It is so interesting. I remember at the start of COVID, I thought, oh my God, I wonder if this is going to really shift things, like break the paradigm to where people realize that the climate crisis is serious and that we need to shift patterns of consumption and energy production and everything. And I think what we've seen, you know, now that we're maybe coming out of it is that there has been a tipping point in terms of climate change, broadly speaking, like the tenor of conversations around the country is really different. It's, you know, we're not there yet. There's a lot, a long way to go, but we're no longer having these ridiculous conversations about like, is it real? Is it not real? Like a lot of people now say that this is a serious, serious problem. Unfortunately, in terms of consumption specifically in the United States, COVID was not a good thing. Um, during the pandemic, uh, consumption skyrocketed. And while there were some signs of hope, like some of these mutual aid societies and some of the kind of crafting activities that took place when people were in lockdown, broadly speaking, it was not, a, it didn't seem to be a moment where people really changed their consumption habits. However, I wonder if the supply chain backup, you know, a lot of the headlines simply seem to be supply chain is messed up. We need to fix it and so that we can get consumer prices back down and kind of go back to where we were. And I wonder, I hope there's an opportunity here for people, um, for businesses especially, to realize that depending on this linear system isn't going to work for them, even from a business point of view, and that developing more local circular 
revenue models for businesses is going to be a key strategy for sustainable businesses and, of course, for reducing our impact. So it's a mixed bag coming out of COVID, I would say. Yeah. And, you know, the first thing that I think about listening to you talk now is plastics, because, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, cheap plastic things are not going to last as long as non-cheap plastic things. I mean, there's that piece, but there's also just the fact that we're dumping so much plastic into the environment. What's your take on all this? Plastic is a huge bugaboo. I mean, we had uh, in our repair shop, we had um, an 85% success rate of all of the items we got in. Many of our repair fails were, they were really for two large reasons. One is parts were unavailable. So the manufacturer would either didn't have a manual or we couldn't get the part for something. Or the other reason we would fail and couldn't fix something is because often a plastic part was broken, either inside a little plastic cog or a joint, something that takes stress or motion or heat would break. Um, and it becomes almost impossible to fix or replace those parts. So it's funny that plastic, which is this huge global problem in our repair shops, also in this very small way became like the root of the whole problem where, you know, you have to throw away the whole toaster or the whole lamp because of this one tiny piece of plastic. So, you know, the plastic problems is is so enormous. It's really for me about design, about the starting point of of how what materials we use to put into a product and then about policy about really regulating the use of this material and really thinking about where we need it um, and where it's inappropriate yeah and it just it seems that things are made to break Mm-hmm. And then if you can, like you said, if you can't find the part or a manual that tells you how to fix it, um, in some ways it's a it's a win for the manufacturer who can sell more of the same product. Maybe. Absolutely, it's a win for them. And that's why my, you know, my push has always been to say that these things I'm recommending are not just for individuals, but for businesses. Again, look at the global supply chain problems, a huge business opportunity in thinking, how can I make money instead of always making money from selling new goods? How could I make money from repair, from service, from upgrades, from reuse, from exchange? It's a way to diversify how we think about businesses at their very core. So are there any partners or companies out there who are working in this space that are pushing us forward? There are so many exciting players in this space. It's still not, you know, as widespread as it needs to be, but everything from small startups. uh, There's a company in New York called AptDeco, A-P-T-D-E-C-O, that I love because it's furniture. They do furniture selling uh, between people. And so furniture is something that's very hard to do circularity when it gets big, like how are you going to ship it to a repair place, ship it to get used? So they're making this logistical systems where you can make it easier to buy and sell used furniture. There are big companies like Ikea has made a commitment to go circular by, I think it's 2030, which is incredibly exciting um, and much needed since they kind of wrote the book on disposable <laughs> home items. Those startups big companies. There's a lot of people really beginning to move. And I I hope that trend continues. And then how about for yourself? What does the future hold for you? What kind of, I don't know, big plans do you have? (laughs) Well, one of the, so the other hat that I wear in addition to, so the repair shops are closed. I wrote the book and um, during COVID we, we went on hiatus and I actually haven't reopened them 
partly because I, I work at Barnard and Columbia, um, where one of the exciting things we're doing at Barnard is we're building what's called a circular campus. So we're using these concepts of circularity to think about not just stuff, yes, our, our purchasing, but also our grounds, our green spaces, our renovation projects, to really think about how we can create a little mini circular economy where sharing and use and repair is how we approach things and use those those systems not just to reduce waste, but also to save money for the college and to support our students, right? Our students need supplies, they need dance shoes, they need textbooks. Our circular campus is a way to help get them access to those really important goods much more easily and affordably. So it's been a really fun step to think about how repairing toasters could, the, the ethos behind it could apply to a whole campus or a whole community. Uh, but that's one of the things I'm working on now. I would really love it if you could share more about that. You know, what are some of the highlights of this program on campus and where are you at now and where are you going for the future? Sure. So the, in some ways, the program started because obviously I was so passionate about circularity, but also as the sustainability director, you know, we have like 10 million problems to solve. Like our weight diversion rates, our trying to electrify our new buildings, the food, all of these different things. And I realized that with this lens of circularity, of sharing, of regenerative approaches, these things are all connected. They're all related and they're connected to equity and supporting our students. So we're thinking of the circular campus in five big buckets, waste, food, purchasing and reuse, design construction and deconstruction, which is an important part of it, and green spaces. We're focusing first on internal reuse. We have just launched an internal reuse platform with a partner called Reaply. And we're looking now also at some design and renovation projects, thinking about ways to apply the principles of circularity to those since buildings um, are a big, big part of our of our footprint on campus and, frankly, everywhere in the world. And we're thinking about traditional forms of circularity, like recycling, composting, you know, how we can get those to be stronger and better on campus. But what's exciting about it for me is tying all these things together and understanding how they're related and how they're all interconnected and how solutions can be related and interconnected as well. I'm thinking of the tiny little farm, you know, very circular way of approaching agriculture and regenerative, reusing water and compost in the green spaces. I mean, is that what you envision? Eventually, yes, that's the dream. And actually, yeah, like there's a wonderful book called um, Waste and Want by Susan Strasser, and she talks about farms and 19th century American life and how some of these circular practices, of course, they weren't called that then. It was just like normal. (laughs) How they were really part of the economic system, the farm system, and how we moved away from them. And I also think it's important to realize that circularity is not new. This is all around us. Almost every neighborhood has an informal network of mom who are exchanging baby clothes or, you know, a lot of communities maybe still might have a repair shop where you can get things fixed or um, a Facebook marketplace or buy nothing group. All of these informal networks and places where we share, exchange, repair, reuse are so powerful. The problem is, is they're not seen as as valuable. They're not part of the mainstream economy. And our challenge, you know, at Barnard on campus, or maybe as a community or as a business or as policymakers, I think is to see the power of these ancient and everyday practices and value them, name them and scale them. I love that. 
And how might folks find you or your book? So my website is sandragoldmark.com and my handles on social media are at Sandra Goldmark. The idea here is to share the wisdom that people already have. And it's not, uh, it's not something new. It's something that we just have to reinvigorate and name. Mm-hmm. And uh, as usual, we shall see you next week. This is Heartstock. And thank you so much, Sandra, for, for sharing your perspective and your wisdom. I appreciate it. Thank you, Carol. The voice was Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.